This is the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris, episode number 10. Welcome back to another episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I am Kevin Morris, and last week we began a series on the writing styles of the Bible. The first writing style which we talked about uh, was the writing style of narratives. If you didn't catch that last episode, you can find it by going to betterbiblereading.com, and under the podcast tab, you can click on episode number nine, and that'll get you to it. Speaking of the podcast, I do want to thank everybody for listening to this, and if you've been helped in any way, I'd like to ask you to do me a huge favor, and that is to go to iTunes, and under this podcast, would you leave an honest review? The best thing that you can do would be to leave one of those if you would like to help me get this show out there, because one of the ways that podcasts work is the more reviews that are given, uh, the better ratings and all the kind of web search elements that go into the podcast, and that will actually help uh, this podcast be recognized and visible to people who are uh, searching for something like this without knowing the actual name to this or without knowing who I am, Kevin Morris. So if, if you're looking for a way to help me spread the word, help get this show out there, that would be the number one way to do it, and I would be so appreciative if you would do that. But anyways, let's get on to the episode itself. So we talked about narrative passages, and we really covered a lot of ground. Uh, hopefully you were able to take a lot of what was said put it into action in your Bible reading from that previous episode up to the present day. And I'd like to give you yet another writing style that is so, so important, and honestly, it's not only an overlooked writing style, but it's probably one that, depending on your depth of biblical and theological studies, you might not have even have heard of this before. So I'm going to do my best to just kind of give a overview and just kind of an easy explanation and definition to it. And again, the whole point of this going through the writing styles of the Bible, just to kind of recap my my argument, if you will, last week is this. The Bible is God's communication to us. It's God's Word that He has given to us, and it is written. It is not an audio file. It's not a video we watch. It is the written Word, and that means the only way that we can receive it unless, of course, you have an audio Bible, but that's a whole other topic. The only way that we can comprehend it, that we can receive it, is to read it. And that means that we, whether we want to or not, have to investigate the Bible by communication method, by literature, by analyzing the text and comprehending the text. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, the end all of the Bible is not an English class, and it's not a history class. It's communing with God. It's being with God, finding Him in His Word, hearing from Him in His Word, through His Word, 
but we have to be able to read. We have to be able to comprehend. And so that means that we have to come to terms with the writing styles that are in the Bible. Because if you spend any time in the Bible, you know that not every book of the Bible is exactly the same, the way that it's written, the style that it comes to us. So you think about Genesis, you think about Psalms, you think about the book of Revelation, you think about 1 Corinthians. All of those books have a different writing style. They have a different communication method. They're still God's Word. They're still true. They're still historically accurate, but there's a different writing style. We have to be able to pick up on that because how we understand that does have a bearing on how we understand God's Word and how we comprehend it and, at the end of it, how we apply it, how we live in light of it. So it's not a question of whether or not we want to. It's really comes down to it as this is how the Bible's written to us, and we must. If we want to understand it, we must, we must come to terms with the writing style. So that's enough ranting. We covered a lot of that introductory last week. So now we want to talk about, here it is, the writing style of the day, parallelism. Let me say that again. Parallelism. Now, what in the world is that? Well, there's a few different ways we could try to tackle that or answer it. I'm going to give you a brief definition that comes from the same author we uh, did a little bit of analyzing of last week, and that was J.P. Fokelman. So here we are again that last week talking about narratives, now today talking about parallelism. And we want to think about that as being a parallel structure or a symmetrical arrangement that helps the reader see the main point of a text. This could be a paragraph, could be a chapter, could be an entire book in the Bible, or as we will see later, it could be the entire Bible. And although there are different forms of parallelism, one of them that is probably the most common that you'll see again and again is that of a chiasm. Let me spell that out for you so you uh, know what I'm talking about. C-H-I-A-S-M. Some people like to pronounce it chiasm. I say chiasm, but that's a whole other thing too. But chiastic structures are parallel structures. And again, just to emphasize, we're not just talking about something abstract or something that's left to the scholars because just as that definition of parallelism implies, he says it's to help readers see the main point of a text. Now, suddenly, if, that, if that's true, that means that every single person who reads the Bible needs to understand what these are, needs to understand how to find them, how to recognize them, what to do with them, because <laughs> – Anybody who's reading the Bible wants to know the main point of the text, right? We all want to know what it means. There's no other reason to read it if we don't want to know the meaning. So that means that we got we got to do something with these parallel structures in the Bible. So there's a few different ways um, that we see this occur. So when we think about word and sentence and paragraph and chapter structure— uh, we 
undoubtedly come to a lot of the wisdom literature in the Bible, right? The the poetic books of the Bible, because those are just naturally going to be more of an emphasis on the arrangement found in each of those books. So you think about the Psalms or, or Proverbs, for example. Those are certainly going to have um, multiple occurrences of parallelism or chiasms occurring within the text. That's just how it is. Another uh, author, or rather another book that I'd like to kind of throw out there for you to think about reading or getting, I've found it to be a really good resource. And unlike J.P. Fokelman, who kind of falls into, really not even kind of falls into, certainly falls into the, the whole liberal theology category, right? The the somebody who who certainly does not believe the Bible is without error. I threw that warning out there last week when I mentioned him. Um, but this book, I don't have to say that, so that's a good thing. But this book is called Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. This was a textbook that I used um, in a couple of my uh, Bible college classes. It's written by William Klein, Craig. Blomberg and Robert Hubbard, and I've found this to be a really good book. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a massive book. It's over five hundred pages long. Uh, on the back of it, it has a really good index. It has uh, scripture references and all those kind of things. But this book, I mean, I, I honestly have like highlights and notes on almost every page in here. There's so many good things, and just as the name implies. It's an introduction to biblical interpretation, or the fancy word hermeneutics. And it was a really good book because it opened my eyes to so many different things that we just miss that are in broad daylight, so to speak, in the text, and we just kind of skim right over them. There's so many different things that are covered in this book. But one of the things that, that is covered in it is, again, this concept of parallelism or chiasms. And I found that here's what they say um, that when they're talking about this idea of parallelism, they say that the center of it is the central point of the text. They say it enables readers to interpret the whole text, to study the surrounding content and come to that centralized point of meaning. So this is honestly easier to see than to hear. So I'd certainly encourage you, if you have a Bible handy, you'll, you'll want to look at it. If not, if you're driving or if you just don't have any hands-free right now, the best thing you can do is go back and, and catch up on this when, when you can actually see it. Because really seeing chiasms or seeing parallel structures um, is going to be where it really clicks for us, but anyhow, uh, they're they're kind of saying the same thing that J.P. Fokelman said. The the point of this parallelism, the point of this chiastic structure, is to come to that center point of the text. This that's what J.P. Fokelman calls the the main meaning of the text. And when it comes to chiasms, to to visualize this. You'd want to have a 
a V shape almost, kind of a V shape structure, but the, but the V is not facing up and down. It's turned so that it's almost like uh, the head of an arrow pointing to the right. So you have a the top part of it that's coming down on an angle to the middle, moving from left to right, and then after you get to the middle, then it goes on a slant the opposite direction. So it's, again, it's a V turned sideways with the point of it facing towards the right like you would have a, a right arrow. And that's that's kind of the visual here. So what they're saying is with parallelism and with chiasms especially, the point of it is to have this symmetry, to have this symmetrical arrangement, and everything builds to the center. Now, we could say that that would be the main point, in other words. The main point of the text could be the main point of a paragraph, chapter, entire book. We talked about that earlier. But you can see this, and once you see it, it's really one of those things that you can't unsee it. And that's a good thing because since it occurs so many times in the Bible, we can find we can find them more easily the more we the more we read. So one of the ways that these authors are really kind of like any biblical interpretation class uh, would want to kind of arrange this for us. One of the, one of the things that they do to arrange this is talk about the progression of it. So. Kind of thinking in in mathematical terms, uh, there's this kind of corresponding relationship between each line. So let's just assume here real quick that there would be five lines, okay? You would have lines one through five. And let's just say, we'll, we'll kind of relate this to actual verses in the Bible shortly. But let's just say for the sake of getting a visual here. Line number one is A, number two is B, number three is C. Okay, so that's that's that progression. You have A, B, and then C, lines one, two, and three. Then line number four is B negative or B prime, some people would call it. And then line number five is A prime. So if you were to write this in kind of a progression, you would have A, B, C, B, A. And so in that framework, you have line number one and five relating to each other. They're both A. You have A and A prime. Lines two and four relating to each other. They're both B and B prime. And then the center is C all by itself. Now, the way that that relates to this idea of centralized meaning is that the C line, or in this case, number three, is the centralized point of the text. I hope that's clear. That's what a chiasm is. It's this symmetrical arrangement. And one of the ways that I like to think about it is I like to relate it to the way that a play is written. I kind of mentioned that, that analogy of a play last week, talking about narrative. It's telling a story. It's getting us to a takeaway. What's the moral of the story, right? That's that's another way of saying, what's the meaning of all this? What's the point of all this? And in parallelism, 
plays help out to illustrate the point as well because in a play you have introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, conclusion. It's really that's that's a chiastic structure. Introduction relates to a conclusion, rising action relates to falling action and then the central meat of the story or meat of the play is the climax that kind of main chunk that moment that that occurrence in the play that's the main story the main takeaway and that's really just a a, t- a typical example of how chiastic structures work now that's a good analogy to think about because what we don't want to say is that if you have a chiastic structure a b c b a that the A's and B's are completely irrelevant because the meaning is just found in C. That's not what we want to think about at all. The whole point that Klein and the others in the biblical interpretation book make is that those centralized points, once we identify those, actually help us to interpret the whole passage because when we find that central point, it helps us to understand or it helps us to come to terms of how to understand the supporting content, the A, the B, the B prime, and the A prime. So really, when we think about biblical theology, that would be kind of the whole scope of of theology from Genesis all the way to Revelation, probably the most important chiastic structure is Jesus Christ himself. Here's how it works. You have in the Bible the introduction, the beginning. You have a initial promise made of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, Redeemer. And then you have the rising action, the progression of sin and evil in the world. And all of this is building up to that final climax. So what is the final climax? I shouldn't say final, but what is the climax? The climax is Christ entering into human history, entering into the world. This is what we celebrate as Christ coming uh, through the Virgin Mary, living the perfect life, dying the death on the cross, being buried, being raised three days later, in victory, ascending into heaven. And from that point, we have the falling action. We have life after the coming of Christ. And that is getting us to that final conclusion or when Christ returns the second time in Revelation and gives final judgment and reward and blessing and ushers in the eternal state. So when we think about that, that's just kind of a really simple way of explaining the story of the Bible as a whole with Jesus being the main point, the the climax of everything happening from the beginning in Genesis leading up to his coming in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And really that that's a helpful way for us to, to think about it because when we want to think about how a chiastic structure works, well, we wouldn't say that Jesus coming— in the 
middle, if you will, of human history makes everything else irrelevant. Well, that's completely not how we want to think about it because one of those really good verses in the Bible happens after Jesus' resurrection. He finds the um, disciples in discouragement and frustration and sadness in Luke chapter 24. He comes to them. He meets with them. He reads the scriptures to them. He teaches them, and it says he teaches them all the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. Now, what is he doing there? Well, what he's doing is he's helping them understand the significance of Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament, in light of him, in light of what he's done. In other words, to think about it as a play, a chiastic structure, the climax, i.e. the coming of Christ, informs how we should understand the introduction and rising action. And same thing can be said for the second half. Jesus Christ coming gives us grounds of how to understand the end of the story. That would be the falling action and conclusion. In other words, the rest of the New Testament. A, a popular way to think about it is how should we live in light of what has happened? That's exactly what the Old Testament and New Testament are doing. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament lives in reaction or in response to the fact that he has come, but both are directed towards the cross, towards Jesus' work in human history. And that's a chiastic structure. Again, that's it's the chiasm of all chiasms because it's the entire Bible as a whole organized and structured in parallelism. And that's not to say that everything besides Jesus is irrelevant in the Bible, but it's to say that Jesus informs everything else in the Bible. It all points to him. The difference is vantage point. And so that that's kind of a cosmic way to look at chiastic structures, but we, we have the bite-sized uh, occurrences of them. And this is where if you do have a Bible, you want to take a look at some of these uh, verses. I'm, I'm going to mention uh, just a few of them because we don't need to look at all of these, but I, I hope once I give you a couple of them, then you'll really be able to see how this works. So you have in, let's say, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, for example. Now, if you remember last week, pop quiz, what writing style is Genesis? The answer is narrative. Good job if you got it right. If you didn't, go back to listen to the episode again because you'll be able to answer that. But in Genesis 2 and 3, we have a chiastic structure. Now, borrowing this from um, one of my assignments I did a little while back in one of my Bible college classes. Um, but if you have a Bible, you'll be able to see this. Um, so you have, in this case, we have not an A, B, C, B, A, but we have an A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And here's how it works. You have the creation of man and establishing a place, a dwelling with God. And you see that in Genesis chapter 2 in basically the first half of the chapter, verses 4 through 17 especially. And these are summary statements of passages. Now, sometimes you have them occur in 
individual verses, but this is kind of taking a larger chunk, because remember, chiasms can happen in sentences, paragraphs, or entire chapters, or entire books. This particular one spans between two chapters, two and three. So we have the creation of man and establishing of a dwelling place with God. That's what you see in Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Then you have, for B, you have the gifting of the woman and establishing of unity between man and woman. And that's what you see in the rest of Genesis 2 in, in verses 18 through 25. Then in C is the very first portion of chapter 3. It says the serpent is crafty above all other animals and prevails against the woman. Now we have our center point, which we could call D or we could call X, or really it doesn't necessarily matter how we um, describe or what letter we give it necessarily. It's really just to understand that this, remember, this is that that downward half of the arrow starting at A and moving down to the, the center. And we have in the center, man and woman sin by eating the fruit of the tree. That's Genesis 3, 6 through 13. Okay, so we made it to the center. Now we're going to work backwards. Next we have in C prime, the serpent is cursed above all other animals, and the woman's offspring will prevail against him. Genesis three fourteen and 15. Then we have B prime, the woman is punished, and there's a disruption of unity between the man and the woman. Genesis 3.16. And then finally, A prime, we have the condemnation of man, man and woman, and banished from a dwelling place or a communion with God. That's Genesis 3.17 through 24. So, how do we understand the structure? Well, remember, the center point is the center of meaning. So that centralized point is where we find the main takeaway, if you will, the main point of the text that informs the rest of it. And you do see that there there is a a beauty, not necessarily in what's being said here, because this is this is a grim this is a grim story in the Bible, but there's a beauty to the structure, to the parallelism, because Remember, the whole point of the ABC center, C prime, B prime, A prime, is that each one is so designated because they correlate to one another. So you have the the beginning and end of this structure. You have A at the beginning, the creation of man and establishment of a dwelling place with God. And then at the very end, of Genesis 3, in the A prime, you have the condemnation of man and the banishment from dwelling place with God. So the, now notice those are like the same thing being said, but in um, contrast, the opposite is happening. And you see the exact same thing happen in B and B prime. In B, you have the gift of woman and establishment of unity between man and woman. In B prime, you have 
the punishment of woman and a disruption of unity between man and woman. Again, opposites are happening there. And then in C, the serpent is crafty and prevails against the woman. C prime, the serpent is cursed and the woman's offspring prevails against him. And then in the center point, you have man and woman sin by eating the fruit of the tree. That center point is the main point of the text. What is the main takeaway of Genesis 2 and 3 to explain the sin of mankind, to explain the sin of Adam and Eve? If you structure, if you structure it this way, then you come to that conclusion. And really one of the ways that you can find this, because you say, okay, well, if I don't have like a diagram or if I don't have like the first or second portion of this given to me, how, how can I ever find the center? It's, it's like a math equation. If you have A plus B equals C and you don't know what A, B or C is, then, you know, how do you solve the problem? Same, same question being asked here. Well, one of the ways that you can begin to see the structure is by seeing those correlating elements. So if you read Genesis, let's just say, for example, the seeds, if you read Genesis 3, 1 through 5 and notice the serpent is crafty and prevails against the woman, and then you get further into Genesis 3 and find, oh, this is like a reverse of what was just said. Now the serpent is cursed and he doesn't prevail against the woman, but there's a promise that her offspring will prevail against him. You can see that there's there's a, a C and a C prime. You don't know that it's C at this point, but you see that these are contrasting ideas with the same players, with the same characters, but opposite things are happening. So then at that point you can say, oh, I realize that this is a contrasting truth being told here. This is true in this case, and then the opposite is true later. So maybe this is a chiastic structure. That's kind of, you, uh, you kind of have to play detective a little bit to see this, but really this is only the case when we have larger portions of Scripture such as this because when they're given to us in more bite-sized elements, then we can see we can see it happening a lot easier because, for one, it's all going to be on one page of the Bible. But in other words, the way when we see those, then by process of elimination, we can kind of work our way to the middle, if you will, of the structure. Same thing can be said if you realize the beginning of Genesis 2, man and woman is established in a dwelling place with God, and then at the end of chapter 3, they're banished from a dwelling place with God. Those are kind of the, the bookends of the chiasm, the beginning and the end of the chiasm. Then you work your way towards the middle and find the meaning. Now, again, in this case, the meaning of Genesis 2 and 3 is to tell us that man and woman sinned by eating the fruit of the tree that disobeyed God. But that doesn't make everything else in Genesis 2 and 3 irrelevant, but what it does is it informs us of how to understand the rest. So if we know that the main takeaway is that man and woman sin by eating from the fruit of the tree, it makes the beginning of Genesis 2 more significant because there's 
there's guilt and there's a severity of the fact that initially man and woman were created and brought into a dwelling place with God. It, it makes the impact of understanding that they sinned that much more significant because initially they were in a dwelling place with God, and it informs us of them being banished from a sacred space. It informs us of the the severity of sin, the significance of sin. How big of a deal is sin? Well, we know that before sin, they were in a dwelling place with God. After sin, they were banished. So therefore, sin must be that which occurs to sever a union, to to sever a communion with God. And, And that's kind of how you work out parallelism or a chiastic structure. Notice that what I just did is I used that main point to inform everything else. It didn't discount everything else and make it irrelevant. It informed it, gave greater depth of meaning to it. And that's the point of chiastic structures. Now that was in Genesis 2 and 3, and that's kind of uh, a main one that we can see. But Here's one more example. This is in Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6, now this is not going to be two chapters long. This is actually going to be six verses long. So this will be a lot easier to see in your Bible. What's said here is, here's another A, B, C, and then D or X being the center, and then C prime, B prime, A prime. So here's how it works. In A, you have the Lord say this, I am the Lord. Now let's, instead of walking to it from one to the next, let's, let's look at the beginning and end now. So let's correlate this to a play. So let's look at the introduction, the first one, I'm the Lord, verse 2. And the conclusion would be verse 8, the second half of verse 8. He says, I'm the Lord. So you, have, you can see the, the same structure entirely in this case. Now they're not contrasting, they're the same idea. The second part, or the rising action, in this case is going to be B and C. So let's talk about the two Bs. Verses 3 and 4 say, I promise land, this is a summary, I promise land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now in B prime, or if you will, the falling action, the, the last part of this before the conclusion, he says this, I promise to bring you to the land, promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same idea again. This time it's not contrasting ideas, it's it's the same idea. So to recap that, verses 3 and 4 says, I promise land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the second half, or the first half rather, of verse 8, I promise to bring you to the land, promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the C, C and C prime, The first C is in verses 5 and 6. He says, I have heard and will free you from bondage in Egypt. And then he says in the second half of verse 7 for C prime, that he will rescue Israel from the bondage in Egypt. Again, same central idea. Now here we come to the center point, the center of the chiasm, which again, Here's the main takeaway of the passage, and it's found in the first half 
of verse 7. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Now, that's six verses in Exodus chapter 6. And we ask the question, let's just say if you read Exodus chapter 6, the first part of it, and you ask yourself, what, what's the meaning of this text? Well, if you recognize the chiastic structure, you can work your way to the center, which in this case is found in the first part of verse 7. And the takeaway of this text is that God says and intends, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. That's the key point of the passage. And again, in this case, God says a truth and reinforces it, not with contrast like we saw in Genesis 2 and 3, but with the same idea. And again, this, there's a beautiful structure here of correlation between the verses. Ver and I'll just repeat that one more time. A and A prime say, verses 2 and verses 8b say, I'm the Lord. B and B prime, that's verses 3 and 4, and the first part of verse 8 says, I promise to take you to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. C and C prime, verses 5 and 6, and the second half of verse 7, is about rescuing Israel from bondage in Egypt. And then the center of the chiasm, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Now again, that's just a beautiful structure that's found in the Bible. Honestly, we miss it all the time, right? We we miss things like this. We don't see them necessarily right off the bat. But it's just a simple way that the Bible is structured for us to understand what's being said. But if we don't analyze it, if we just read it at face value, we often miss it. But the more that we recognize things like this, the easier they are to find in the future, the easier that we can recognize them later on. Now, I mentioned that these are found in the Psalms and, and other books like that. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but one of the one of the passages that I'd like you to take a look at later, give you a little bit of action steps here, is to check out Psalm 22. And you'll see Psalm 22 is a really good example of parallelism, but this time it's not just a chiastic structure the way that we see here. This time, parallelism is more of a kind of repetition form. And what you'll see is different types of parallelism in this particular psalm, Psalm 22. There's really good elements that we can find in here, but here I'll give you just um, a couple things to look for in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, you find synonymous parallelism. An example of this will be found in verse 2. You also find antithetic parallelism. This would be found in verses 18 and 19. There's different types as well, but those are two examples, synonymous and antithetic. And what you'll see, just to give you, I'll go ahead and read those for those of you that don't have a Bible in front of you so that you can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, a synony synonymous example of parallelism would be this in verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, 
but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Now you can hear that structure happening. He says not only during the day, but also at night, you don't answer. But he's saying not just repetition of the sky is blue, the color of the sky is blue. That would be saying the same exact thing. But he's saying things that are similar. There's something similar being said. I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. So he correlates the fact that God doesn't answer to the fact that he doesn't find rest. Now that's an example of a synonymous structure of parallelism. And the other one that I mentioned was antithetic parallelism. There's an antithesis happening here. And this example would be found in verses 18 and 19. It says this, They divide my garments among them. That would be those who are persecuting David here, his um, antagonistic people in the crowd. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, first half of the antithesis. Now here's the second half of the contrast. Now, you can see this in the word antithesis. There's a contrast. There's two contrasting things happening. So there's the first one. They do this, and now here's the second half. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So there's the contrast. David here is contrasting those who are persecuting him, and he describes what they do. They come to him to take his garments and to undo him, if you will. In contrast to them, there is the Lord, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. And he calls the Lord to come help him, come quickly to his aid. Now that's different from somebody coming up and snatching away your clothes and then rolling dice for it to see who's going to win it, right? That, that's, that is not helping the person in need. But the Lord, by contrast, by antithesis, is different from these who come and divide his garments. The Lord is the one that comes to give help and to give aid. Now, those are two examples of parallelism, this time not as a chiasm per se, although even here we could say that these are chiasms because in a synonymous chiasm, these aren't paragraphs long or chapters long. Those were examples of one verse and example of two verses. So in this case, we would divide them by lines instead of by verses or, or chapters. In this case, that first one, the synonymous one, would just be A and A prime. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. A and A prime, they're, they're synonymous. The second one is a variation of the first one to reinforce what's said. Now here, in that antithetical one, there is an A and a B, or you could just call it A and A prime again, but to emphasize that the, the prime is not synonymous, but contrast, antithetical. So even here, these are just examples. So a a chiasm doesn't have to be A, B, C, D, C, B, A. It could just be A and A prime. 
really. It's just depends on the structure. But again, notice, because sometimes, especially when we're reading Psalms like that, sometimes we read it and we say, gosh, why did he say the same thing twice? He's like saying the same thing just a slightly different way. But remember, the whole point of chiasms and parallelism is to show us the main point and then everything else there reinforces the main point and the main point reinforces everything else. So there's no wasted phrases. There's no wasted words, but there's reinforcement happening. One of the things that I would like to point out in closing is that Jesus even uses this in his communication. One of the most popular things that Jesus, I should say unpopular during this time, I'm sure, but popular in terms of what we remember, one of those kind of takeaway passages is when Jesus gives a sevenfold woe that he pronounces to the scribes and Pharisees. And the main point of it is they're in the wrong and they're hypocrites. But Jesus starts out each of those seven woes by saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and then he gives a description of them. Now that is even a chiastic structure. It's parallelism because the main point is being said, they're hypocrites, they're evil, they're in the wrong, but in each one of those sevens, Jesus gives a different description of how they are evil and how they're hypocrites. Each description reinforces the other one. So again, that's another example of, this. it's a different example, but it's just yet another example of how parallelism occurs in the Bible. Again, the main point of parallelism, recognizing it, is not so we can just be scholarly or be academic or almost treat the Bible as like a, like a code book to like decipher, but it's to find the central meaning of the text. And when we find it, we realize the emphasis placed on everything else, how it all fits together in a cohesive description, cohesive story. And to recap on what I said earlier, that's how the Bible as a whole is structured with Jesus being the centerpiece of it all. And everything else, the first half and the second half, are understood in light of the central meaning of Christ. Genesis through Malachi and Matthew through Revelation are all understood in light of Christ. So I'm going to leave you with that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That is parallelism. And we talked about chiastic structures. We threw out a lot of kind of heavy, heavy hitting words there. Uh, but I hope that you'll really see the practical element of this when we're reading the Bible. We want to find the meaning. We want to understand what God's saying to us. And as we analyze these structures, they become easier and easier to comprehend. And then before we know it, it's really second nature to start recognizing these and understanding the meaning of the Bible with greater clarity and living in a good and right response to it. I want to mention in closing, if you have any topics, and this could be for this podcast, could be for future blog posts, could be for video courses, and I mean, whatever the case may be, what I'd like you to do is go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash 
ask and send me whatever question. What what kind of material do you want me to cover on here? What kind of Bible questions do you have? Could be the next blog article or podcast episode in the future. I'd be glad to implement some of the things that you're interested in biblical answers to and how I tackle some of these Bible question and answer issues that come up in everybody's mind. But anyways, I'd love to hear back from you. So again, if you're interested in sending me some requests of what kind of content to cover in the future, betterbiblereading.com forward slash ask. Look forward to hearing from you. Hope you enjoy all this content and I look forward to talking with you again in the next episode. Take care.